Welcome to episode 214 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. We're through the looking glass people. Because today's episode, we're talking refractors. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love going out under the night sky. And this podcast is for anyone else who likes looking up under the stars. How many refractors do you own, Shane? Oh, yeah, I should have counted. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, six seven, seven. Eight, oh, you win. Nine. I think it's nine. There might are you counting finder scopes too now or what? No, no. These are, this is all relevant, legitimate. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's nine. Uh, 10 nine. if you include my H alpha, but you know, that's, that's no, cheating. We're not I think. That. Yeah, that's yeah. cheating. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I've got six. Yeah. 50 millimeters to five inches. Yeah. I've got the 50 millimeter acro that we've mm-hmm. set up as ultimate wide field telescopes. I've got my Takahashi 60 millimeter FS. I've got my uh, ED80 or no, my ED80. I've got, I've got an ED80 uh, from William Optics back in the day. I've got a ST80. I've got my 100 millimeter Takahashi. I've got my 125 millimeter Pentax Borg. Yeah. How many is that? Whatever that is. I think that's six, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I've got the, the mini Borg 50 Acro. I've got the uh, Borg 50 FL, uh, William oh, yeah. Optics, Zenith star 61 mil, uh, as oh, yeah. ice telemeter, that's 63 millimeters. Uh, I've got a very old Takahashi, uh, TS 65 mm-hmm. uh, that I really should sell. Um, yeah, you should. I, I don't use it. Uh, I'm just stepping up here. So then I go to a 76 millimeter TAC DCU. Uh, I have a 76 millimeter Tasco 10 TE, another vintage telescope. Um, and then from there, I think I jumped to the, uh, the Teleview Genesis SDF, which is 101 millimeter. Uh, and then the 120 ED, uh, Skywatcher, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. It was, it was interesting when you, when you said, Hey, how about we do an episode on refractors? <laughs> I was like, yeah, <laughs> isn't every episode about refractors. Yeah. I think part of that was going to be my first response is yeah. Isn't that what we do every yeah. week? But, but it's been an oversight. I think I, I don't believe we've actually delved into the world of refractors and, and just like dedicated a, an episode to it. So, so I think this is a good choice. And, and I thought since it's our birthday, we get to pick the episode. The, the actual astronomy is now two years old. Two years old. Wah, wah. There mm-hmm. we go. Mm-hmm. Nothing screams astronomy more than that long, slender tube of a refractor perched high upon a mount. Do you remember your first view through one of these exquisite instruments? I do. Um, I was quite young. Um I don't know. Like, I I think what I've said before on the podcast is I was like eight to 10 years old, somewhere in that range. And my mom took me to the local astronomy club's uh, observatory. They had a public night and in it was a, uh, a four inch. Why am I drawing a blank now? It's a vintage brass telescope. Brashier. Brashier. Yes. Thank you. Uh, four inch brochure. I forget the focal length, but the image was Saturn. It's firmly burned into my memory. I will never forget that. And that certainly was, um, 
not just like, I've always been interested in astronomy at that point in my life, but that really like wowed me as to what you could see through a telescope. And, and that really lit the fire to, uh, to pursue the hobby. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's very cool. I was just trying to look up really quick to see if we could see what was going on with that telescope, but that doesn't really say what the, uh, what the focal length is of it anywhere very handy that I can find very quickly, but I've seen the telescope looks pretty long, but I almost don't want to say it's an F12. I feel like maybe it's yeah. more like a N or something like that. Yeah. It would be probably in that 10 to 15 range. It, it It's quite long. Um, yeah. and, and this was made like this telescope would not, well, I can't rem- remember when it was made. It might be around a hundred years old now. Oh, it's, it's more than a hundred. Yeah. It was, it, 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 yeah, it would be right around there. And, you know, telescopes then were certainly not mass produced. So this would have been a, a like a one-off uh, that uh, was made for the, the local club. And it is now in a museum um, on display. So people can see it at the Western Development Museum in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Yeah, I always thought it was kind of a shame that the uh, local astronomy club had decided to put it in a museum. I, I feel like that's a very odd thing. But I would, uh, I would love to look through it one night, but... Uh, I don't know. Hopefully that happens at some point. Yeah. I just, I see an ad from about a dozen years ago online, just sort of cruising around and somebody was selling one in 2008 for four thousand or for $8,000. Yeah. So they are, they are not, uh, not inexpensive. Yeah. I'm trying to remember my first view through a refractor. Well, it was actually probably Dave Chapman's. I think he had like a 70 millimeter Teleview Ranger is that what they're called? Anyway, it was something like that. I think that was my first view of a uh, of anything through a refractor, and uh, yeah, I was just blown away. I'd uh, I'd seen the ads for these things. The ads were just so so gorgeous. They just made you want to get one and look through it. And uh, I went to my first star party, and I really had wanted to look through a refractor. I owned an eight inch daub at the time, and I looked through that telescope. And then Roy Bishop had a astrophysics starfinder 105 and i looked through that and then tony jones had his five inch astrophysics i think it was a starfire as well like an f9 or something and i spent a long time looking through that and uh yeah just just having looked through like these small um apochromatic or i guess the range of the ranger was ed um, just really good little re- refractors. And I just was like, oh, this is, this is what I want. I want to get one of these, these instruments. They are just so, so neat to look through. The, uh, the star parties around here, um, they're mostly dominated by like Dobbs and Cassegrains. Uh, there, there definitely are refractors, but it seemed like the majority of the refractors also had cameras attached. So yeah. I never really looked through refractors that often until you moved here and you brought your uh, Borg 125. Yeah. And at that point, I think I had my 12 inch light bridge. Um, and, you know, you and I would often be out observing at the same time and we yeah. would share views. And I just could not believe how sharp everything was through your yeah. refractor. And every time I walked away from your telescope, I just said to myself, like, man, that is such a nice view. Yeah. Um, and then as I got more and more frustrated with, you know, the hauling of a big 12 inch and the, ca- uh, the collimation and, you know, on and on and on, 
Um, I finally converted over uh, to uh, a refractor person, I suppose. I, I bought, um, I'm trying to think, the first serious refractor that I bought was, well, I had an 80 millimeter William optic that I never used too much. Um, so then my, my next real purchase was the 120 ED, which I mm -hmm. really loved. Mm -hmm. And I kept the light bridge, I think for another two years, uh, before I ended up selling it, but I didn't use the light bridge anymore at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, once I got the refractor, I just had so much fun with it. So, uh, the light bridge is no longer mine. And now I have a stable of refractors. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, after, after viewing through a five inch, Apocrymat. Like I'd look through smaller ones and then I really decided that was the instrument, uh, for me, you know, we were talking in the last episode, I'd like to get like a more permanent setup for it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and that's really, really my goal. Like, uh, my wife asked me yesterday, like, well, well what telescope do you want to put in like a, like a small observatory? And I said, well, that five inch, because that's, uh, that's really just such a great all round instrument, wide field, uh, awesome on planets, you know, and, uh, it really, really can go deep. I, I ran it quite a bit against like eight in, really high end eight inch, um, reflectors and, uh, you know, it's right up there. So it, it would see as deep as an eight inch reflector, more or less, but like very, very close. And, and then you got this huge field of view. So it, it, you know, really could serve double duty as a telescope that can run with, uh, you know, su substantially larger instruments, as well as give this, huge wide field of view. And, uh, to me that just, uh, you know, equates to kind of like a perfect instrument. So, uh, and just like, like you said, the aesthetics of those crystal clear and, and sharp images, uh, that the, that the refractor shows. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I think we'll probably get into some of the pros and cons of, of different designs as, as we go through this episode. Um, mm -hmm. cause not all refractors are the same and, uh, there are some nuances to be aware of if, if anybody is interested in making a refractor purchase. Yeah. I just want to run through, there's some pretty large, famous, uh, refractors, you know, un until, um, you know, the, the 20th century that the refractor was, um, the big instrument of choice for the observatories. And it's really stuck, I think, in, uh, you know, in the public's mind, everybody's mind um, as sort of the quintessential uh, observatory instrument. But, uh, you know, that really hasn't been the case for over, really for over a century. But some of the largest ones are like the 40-inch Yerkes uh, is the largest uh, in, in operation as far as being a telescope. You can actually go in and look through um, though there was one in Paris for an exhibition, which I think was um, around 1900, it was slightly larger. And then there's a giant solar one, but I think it just like casts an image. It's not like tube mounted and it's in like a special solar observatory. But as far as being like a, a traditional refractor on a mount, the Yerkes uh, 40 inches is the largest. I've never been there to see it. Um, I went to, to the Lick 36 inch, but um, it was closed on the night that I, I went up. I, I had hoped to, to look through that. Uh, that's in California. In Paris, there's the Moudon 33 or maybe it's just outside of Paris. Uh, that's another pretty famous, uh, pretty famous one. Um, there's the U.S. Naval Observatories, uh, 26 inch. And then there's the uh, famous Lowell Observatory, uh, 24 inch. Now there's, there, and there's lots of different large refractors sort of in between all these. 
uh, as well. But uh, th- there's a nice list on on Wikipedia. You can, people can go through um, of the world's largest uh, refractors. I think they list like the largest 50 refractors in the world or something like that. Um, yeah, and it's just kind of neat to uh, to take a look and and to see uh, through them all. But uh, yeah, I've I've never been been fortunate to go and and look through any of those large ones. But boy, I sure would love to look through some of the large uh, refractors someday. Yeah, it would be amazing. Um, even the uh, the refractor that Mark Radici was telling us about, mm-hmm. on, uh, the, I think it was the second episode maybe that he joined us. Uh, yeah. I forget the observatory name. I, I think I have it bookmarked here. But Yeah, um, he did an episode on, on his uh, Refreshing Views YouTube channel about it. Wasn't it like a nine inch or something like that? Something like that. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember. It's decent size. And uh, yeah, I did some imaging through it. And yeah, said uh, it was really fun. Yeah. 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 Definitely. You know, when, when my wife and I travel, we, we pick destinations based on, you know, history and culture and some of the, excuse me, some of the things we look for nice restaurants or entertainment, but, uh, certainly on my list now is, is, uh, uh, observatories where I could look through big refractors mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if I can fit that into some of our travels, uh, I'll definitely be making that a priority. Yeah, I certainly would would like to as well. I just uh, haven't landed in a spot that uh, that has any, or I guess just for the sake of actually going and doing some my own astronomy, I think there's some pretty good sized uh, Clarks in um, Florida. But uh, when mm-hmm. I've been down there and and uh, keen to go do some astronomy, I I you know put myself in spots that were going to be dark and and good for doing astronomy, and they tend to be far away from from those locations. Uh, let's see. So there's there's sort of two main types of refractors. Um, when we talk about refractors, we have uh, achromatic or achromat refractors or APO or apochromatic uh, refractors. So, uh, so Shane, what, what's an achromatic refractor? Maybe we'll start there. Um, well, I don't know the, like the textbook definition, but basically an achromatic uh, refractor um, uh it won't have the color correction of, uh, an APO. Um, but it's, it's essentially designed to limit, uh, the effects. Am I reading this right here? Yeah. Uh, I'm reading your definition here. So why don't I just start with that? Yeah, An achromatic just... lens or achromat is a lens that is designed to limit the effects of chromatic and spherical aberration. Uh, achromatic lenses are corrected to bring two wavelengths into focus on the same plane. Uh, one element is a concave element or a negative made out of flint glass, such as F2, uh, which has a relatively high dispersion. And the other is a convex positive element made of crown glass, such as BK7, uh, which has lower dispersion. So these lens elements are mounted next to each other, uh, often cemented together and shaped so that the uh, chromatic aberration of one is balanced out, uh, by the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 A lot of the older telescopes are achromats and, um, you know, the, one of the, one of the things to make an achromat perform better is, uh, you have a very long focal length, uh, mm-hmm. you know, relative to an Apo. So like my Tasco 10, uh, TE is a 76 millimeter telescope, uh, for aperture, but it's 1200 millimeters in focal length. So it's like a, almost an F 16, which is, uh, unheard of with modern telescopes for the yeah. most part. Yeah. So just to kind of break this down uh, a little bit, basically what the acromats are doing is there's, there's kind of, there's kind of sort of, and I'm kind of fudging this around a bit. 
but there's there's sort of three wavelengths of color um, that the telescope is trying to draw into focus. There's red, uh, green, and blue. And uh, basically, the acromats are going to bring in uh, two of those um, really close together or, or overlapping. So you get a nice sharp focus in in two colors, or or very you know very very close in two colors. And then there's there's one that that kind of uh, is a bit of an outlier. And so what what we see, and and at least um, what we often see, like in a really fast acromat, like an 80 millimeter f5, you've pointed out a bright star you'll see a giant sort of purple haze around it. Eh? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it introduces some color um, and, and like for brighter objects. So this is particularly with the planets. Sometimes that color can take away your ability to um, like kind of see that fine detail or the contrast that's needed um, to, to pull out subtle differences like on Jupiter or Mars. Yeah. But the acromats can be uh, well-made, you know, like these Mm -hmm. older instruments, um, you know, like we were talking about for more than a century ago, um, you know, they would give very sharp images, even though they would have some of the secondary color, but like Shane was saying to compensate and to, to bring that third color in uh, closer to those other two, they increase the um, focal length of the telescope or the focal ratio. And so that, that does a variety of things. Uh, One of the things that it does is, it makes the light cone less steep. So it's easier to bring the colors. The colors are just naturally going to be close together. And then the other thing is, is that the actual focus range of the telescope, um, it's not going to be tight. So it's going to be easier to hit that sweet spot. Eh? So it kind of does a variety of things, but those are like the two main ones that uh, that help out to, to get everything into uh, sharp focus. Yeah. Yeah. Like my, my Tasco 10 TE is a phenomenal telescope. Um, my Zeiss telemeter um, that's a uh, 63 millimeter by 840 millimeter focal length. Um, it's also outstanding. Um, so there, there certainly are some good ones out there. Yeah. And not everybody's as sensitive to the, uh, the color correction, like, you know, um, you know, and in fact, like, you know, honestly, like I'm not that sensitive to, uh, the color correction, but, uh, but I do find like that Takahashi, has the best color correction of my instruments. Uh, but, you know, I, I've been looking at like Jupiter and the moon with the, uh, the 50 millimeter acromats that, that, uh, that we made up last year and, uh, they're pretty fast, you know, F5. So, um, but, but, you know, still great, great views, really enjoy them. So talk briefly, like in my notes about the, uh, elements, uh, flint glass, such as F2, um, and then BK7, uh, glass. So, um, the, the F2 flint glass, that's like just pretty common glass. Like if you, you know, took a time machine back 20 years or 30 years and went to, to get glasses and you were just getting um, regular glasses, a lot of the glass that you would uh, get, I, I believe anyone anyway, on an optician or anything, I believe a lot of that would be uh, like a flint uh, glass. And then BK7, um, that might be familiar to people because in the less expensive binoculars, you know, those binoculars mm-hmm. that would give those almost like diamond, like exit pupil Shane, mm-hmm. if you've ever through a pair like that before. Yep. Yep. For sure. That's BK seven glass. That's, uh, that's being used in those binoculars. Um, but now just because maybe in the binoculars, um, you want BK four glass, um, cause the BK seven doesn't work as well in binoculars. Uh, I believe BK seven glass can work pretty good for making a decent, uh, achromatic, uh, refractors. So it's not really like a strike against the, the telescope that it's using that type of glass. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that is uh that is kind of a like an important part of refractors or, or at least uh something that you may wonder about if you start looking at refractors is what does this all mean with the different glasses that are used because uh, it, it seems like every manufacturer has their own glass or mating system that they'll use to, uh, you know, correct for you know, aberrations and, and other things. So, um, I think we'll get into that as, as we go through the episode yep. is just what some of these different glasses mean in terms of quality. Yeah. And there's, there's uh, a few different types of design, um, that have become popular. There's, there's quite a few types, but I'm going to kind of list sort of the the main ones, um, as far as the, the designs and we're not going to go into each one of these in any detail. Um, but there's the Fraunhofer design by Joseph Fraunhofer, who's a famous, uh, optician, um, created the spectrograph and discovered, uh, you know, the, those dark bands in the spectrum. Um, uh, there's Clark, uh, design refractors, uh, oil space designed, uh, achromatic refractors and, uh, Steinheil or Stenheil, I'm probably not saying that correctly, um, but those are kind of like the main types of refractors. Like if you just went and pulled a refractor off the shelf, it's going to be one of those types, probably a Fraunhofer or a Stenheil. They're probably going to be your, uh, your top, uh, top designs there. So how does color uh, come into play and like, how, how can you know what color uh, impacts the focal ratio uh, of the particular acromat you have, um, will, will impact your view. Well, first of all, like you need a little bit of experience. So even if you've just looked through like an 80 millimeter F5, um, you can pretty quickly, um, figure out a bit of a calculation and it's called the, uh, Conradi standard. Um, and there's, um, like a bit of a sliding scale. If you look up Conradi standard and graph, you'll actually find, um, this, this chart, it's like, a Kind of looks like a bit of a spreadsheet chain, I think mm -hmm. is, is yeah, probably what yeah, it is. It's kind of a matrix. Yeah. And it's pretty famous for actually describing like uh, how much color you will see or how much color uh, you likely won't see, knowing that everybody is a little bit different. So generally what you're looking at is your objective um, in, you know, in inches and millimeters as a ratio with, with the focal um, ratio. So for, for example, like a, let's just pick something easy. I'm looking for like, uh, well, like a four inch, um, let's see, like a four inch, uh, refractor. Okay. That's F8. Well, you're going to divide the eight, um, divided by four gives you about two, and that's going to sort of land right in the middle of what they call like filterable levels of chromatic aberration. Now, if it was, uh, like F, uh, four or F five, that's getting into a level that is, uh, too much chromatic aberration. And then if your four inch was like, go oh, like an F 12, that's where a four inch, uh, begins to have minimal or no chromatic aberration, uh, visible for, uh, for the average uh, person. So basically, uh, three times, um, the aperture in inches. So now if you took like a five inch telescope, you've got to multiply five by three and that's going to give you 15. So you need to get the F 15. So you can see quickly, these telescopes get longer and longer and longer, um, almost like exponentially, uh, but by the aperture, well, of course they are because you're just, you're just increasing, 
the longer focal length that's needed um, in order to reduce that secondary uh, color. But, uh, but like I own an 80 millimeter F5, which puts it pretty close, but not quite over the line for unacceptable levels of CA. And uh, it's fine. Like I enjoy viewing with it. You know, there's, there's sort of an application for these type of telescopes. Eh? For sure. And, and it kind of is like you, you, you know, you use the right tool for the right job. Mm-hmm. And with these super fast acromats, uh, they're not intended to be used on the planets or bright objects. Like you're looking at, you know, extended uh, deep sky objects, uh, you know, wide field. Um, that's that's the real purpose there. So, um, you know, as long as you're not using high magnification on Jupiter, you're probably going to be quite quite fine with that telescope. Yeah, and you'll see like there's a lot of a good example of this is there's a lot of like six inch F8 acromats. And the rate on that acceptability line between filterable levels and unacceptable um, chromatic aberration. And then um, you, you'll see lots of uh, six inch F5 telescopes out there that, that are, you know, right in well within that unacceptable level of chromatic aberration zone. But like you were saying, Shane, the secondary color, this sort of purple haze that we talked about earlier um, that will appear around bright objects and, and maybe washing out some of that fine planetary detail um, doesn't really apply as much uh, on the deep sky. So people that are buying six-inch F5 instruments, um, they're hopefully not buying them to look at the planets or the moon. What they're doing with them is looking at uh, comets. For example, uh, I knew somebody that had a six-inch F5. Um, I always thought it'd be cool to look at it. They brought it out one night when Comet Holmes was in having its big outburst there um, all those years ago and uh, just had this amazing view uh, of Comet Holmes through uh, through the six-inch uh, refractor. But I, I don't think we even bothered putting it on a planet that night. Uh, they're deep sky machines. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Um, yeah, yeah, that's where you use them. And, and if you stick with that, again, you, you'll probably be pretty happy. Um, you know, a, a side conversation to this discussion about refractors is the focal length speed or, or a fast scope versus a slow scope. Um, the other thing with a, a faster telescope is they are a little harder on eyepieces, meaning, you know, you need a, a better eyepiece to correct mm-hmm. the field at the edges, spe- uh, particularly wider field eyepieces. So something else to keep in mind that if you go with an F5 uh, refractor, you're, you're going to require eyepieces that are well corrected. Otherwise the stars look like kind of check marks or, or doves, or, you know, some people say V's, but anyway, they're no longer pinpoints. Uh, the further from center you get. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, maybe I'll read the definition for the apochromats. Sure. Go for it. <laughs> Since my notes are a bit scattered. Um, so the apochromats, they're better corrected for chromatic operations. They're not going to have as much of that color. They're attempting to bring in the three uh, primary uh, RGB, red, green, blue colors into focus at the same spot. They uh, typically have less spherical aberration. Um and these uh, lenses are, are using optical glasses with special dispersive properties um, to get those three colors to, to come into sharper focus. So uh, this is achieved using um, fluoro crown glasses, often referred to as uh, fluorite or uh, the more modern version of that, I believe, which is FPL 53. And they're using uh, abnormal flint glasses, um, such as, lan- I think like I'm going to go and lan- lanthanum. I think that's, uh, what, what, 
you know, that the text that I was uh, reading was, was referring to as abnormal flint glasses. Um, and you'll even get uh, these, these glasses being combined with uh, some sort of optical transparent liquid uh, in between them to, uh, to sandwich the lens together. But, you know, sort of breaking it down a little bit further, um, we, we not only have achromatic and apochromatic um, telescopes, uh, refractors, but there's also the semi-apo. Remember they used to call them semi-apos, Shane, do you remember that? And then they eventually just sort of honed in on the, on the ED, calling them ED telescopes. Yeah. Well, my, my T my Takahashi TS 65. So it's a 65 millimeter, uh, aperture, 1000 millimeter focal length telescope. This was, I believe released in 1971. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a triplet meaning three, three objectives, uh, to form the, the main lens area. Uh, but it's labeled as a semi-apochromat. <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, you know, it's kind of funny because it, it really performs like an apochromat or at least what we consider apochromats, uh, today. Yeah. So the semi-apo, it, it's a term used to, uh, to describe something that's a little bit better than the typical Fraunhofer, uh, achromatic refractor, uh, but not quite as well corrected as the apochromats. And, uh, these are sometimes uh, more properly called now ED telescopes or ED refractors. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and as with all of these type of refractors, they can be downright excellent. Uh, and they're using low dispersion glass, uh, doublets typically, although like you said, yours was a, was a triplet there. Um, so there's a lot of different uh, varieties of these and cer certainly you can find them in, in a variety of different configurations. Um, but typically they have at least one special dispersion uh, element to focus uh, virtually uh, all wavelengths of light, uh, extremely close, but they're not quite getting there. Um, but it results in uh, pretty darn good in-focus star images and they're typically doublets and they have some sort of fancy glass is what it boils down to. And uh, that the fancy glass that one of my uh, telescopes had was, I think it was called shot, uh, shot mm -hmm. glass or 51 uh, FPL 51. And it was, it was pretty good. Although like when I was reading around, like sometimes they'll refer to FPL 53 as being in this. And typically I thought FPL 53 was more like the fluoride glasses. So it, it just depends on like, what glass is being used and the, the mating elements in that, whether it's going to be deemed as uh, apochromatic or, or ED. Um, and let's see. So they're trying to bring in three wavelengths of light. And typically with the ED, it allows the green um, spectrum to drift off. So, and I've seen this as well with the, um, with the ED scopes, often you'll see more like a green spurious color than, uh, than you will with the acromats, which will have more of this purple halo. And uh, it, it's really just how much they drift away from that green, uh, you know, that, that allows them to claim that it's, that it's semi-apo. And I've seen that um, in particular with um, especially some of the really early like uh, Orion ED80s. For example, we would put it on like Cirrus um, or other bright stars or the moon, and you'd be able to see just this little bit of a green um, cast along the limb. And in, and in fact, really with our little uh, 50 millimeter acromats, I find that I get more of this green cast, even though they're, they're acromatic, I think just because they're so small. Um, but that's really what you're seeing when you, when you have uh, a semi-apochromat. Yeah, okay, yeah. go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say too, one, one nuance with fluorite is that it's, uh, it's actually crystal, um, mm -hmm. whereas the FPLs are truly glass. Um, right. 
now fluorite is uh, far more expensive because it's harder to come by. Um, it's harder to work with, but the real advantage, or, or there's, I think there's a number of advantages with fluorite, but one of them that uh, I was just reading about, although there's a little bit of, I don't know if everybody's in agreement with this, but glass, no matter what version you're getting, FPL 51, 53, or 55, um, they have micro bubbles in them. And that's just the inherent nature of glass. Uh, crystal uh, doesn't have those micro bubbles in them. And uh, as such, there's less dispersion within the glass or within the fluorite compared to glass. Although some people say it wouldn't really be detectable by your eye. Um, hard to say, you know, what I can say for sure is that, um, the Taka, the Takahashi telescope that I have with fluorite does take magnification exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. Um, now not all of that though, is just because it has fluorite, uh, in it. Um, the other aspect here is just the attention to detail on the polish, uh, of the, of the lens. So you could have fluorite, but if it's not polished correctly, it's going to, you know, be a terrible performer. Um, so there's a little bit of the manufacturing quality that goes into this as well as the quality of the glass or, or yeah, the quality of the, uh, objective. And if people want to read up on, on the glass and kind of how all this stuff, um, uh, maybe works together, if you want to dive deeper, more deeper than what we can go into here, uh, a, the, the real book on this is by, uh, Greg Smith, Roger Sergioli, and Richard Berry. It's called Telescopes, Eyepieces, and Astrographs, Design Analysis and Performance of Modern Astronomical Objects. Uh, of course, out of print, and, uh, but you might be able to find it uh, through a friend or through um, an astronomy library, or maybe even your, your local library might be able to, to track down a copy to get in for you. But that's, I think that's the, sort of the definitive uh, book. Not that old either. Let's see. Okay. So there's a variety of elements that can be used. Uh, so far, we've really talked about doublets and a little bit about triplets. And it's it's fairly simple, isn't it, Shane? Like doublets, two elements, triplets, three elements, mm -hmm. and quadruplets. Guess what? They have how many elements? Four. <laughs> so let's see. Um, the more elements, the more expensive, more or less. Agree? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the more elements, the more expensive because you're just, there's more glass there, but then there's also a lot more in the manufacturing that has to happen to make sure that all of those elements work well together. Yeah. Um, spacing, uh, some of them have oil in them. Um, so the alignment of those lenses as well needs to be, uh, bang on or else the telescope will not perform very well. Yeah. So it's kind of looking like, you know, and I was, I was thinking about like the differences, like why have uh, two elements uh, versus three or three elements instead of four? Why bother going to four elements? You know, the, the only thing um, I can really say about that, having looked through a variety of triplets is that um, you can get a slight bump in color correction by, by going to the triplet. But really, this is something I think that almost um, becomes something that's vis visible just sort of through images, like if you're imaging with the telescope. And then the quadruplets, again, they're, they're being created for basically wide field, flat field, not necessarily planetary imaging uh, or having really flat, wide field of views. Um, like your, you have a Teleview uh, Petzl uh, design. Oh, Vixen has made some Petzls as well. But uh, what, what kind of comments do you have for the uh, doublets, triplets, and, and quadruplet chain? 
Well, I really like the doublets because they cool quickly and they're uh, they're relatively light. So, you know, 120 millimeter doublet is far lighter than 120 millimeter triplet. Um, so I am a big fan of the doublets. Um, I do have a, a Teleview Genesis SDF, which is a, a Petzval. Mm-hmm. And this is a very interesting design because what it does, uh, the telescope lens that's in that in the telescope itself. So a Petzval has two elements at the front and then two elements at the back uh, of the tube, essentially. And, um, the, uh, the two elements at the front are something like an F 10 or an F 11 focal length. However, the telescope itself is actually like F 5.4 or something. Yeah. So the, uh, the two elements at the back one, well, they, they work in conjunction to, like you said, flatten the field, but also, uh, reduce, uh, the focal length essentially, like there's mm-hmm. a reducer there. Um, so it can take a longer focal length, uh, lens and then package it into a much smaller tube. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting design. Collimation is exceptionally important when you have four lenses, meaning they're all aligned properly. Um, but anyway, what, it, what ends up happening is you get uh, a very wide field telescope that is exceptionally flat. And when we say flat, We mean then that all of the stars in that field of view are sharp or pinpoints right to the edge. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, that's a hard thing to achieve. Um, you know, it's, if anybody is in the world of like project management, um, there's the, the pyramid or or the, you know, the, the, the three points of, you know, what is it fast, cheap and high quality, you know, pick any two, you can't have all three (laughs) and, um, you know, with a Petzval, you're sort of getting like everything. Um, whereas with other designs, there's sometimes some trade-offs that you have to consider. Yeah. I'm, I'm more a fan of the conjoined triangles of success than anyway. All right. Um, yeah. So there's, and there's a couple others that have built them as well. Like Vixen had a 140 that was like a Petzval mm-hmm. design. And the, then I know the Neo Brest- Acro, I think they called that or the Neo yeah. or something. Yeah, the NEO, and I think there was a couple different versions of that in not quite a six-inch size, 140 millimeter. And then uh, Bresser actually has, and sort of like one of those things that uh, that has caught my attention is these uh, Bresser, and I know AstraZap was supposed to come up with it for a long time, a four-element. And I always thought those ones would be interesting. I think they're, again, like you were saying, like an F10 or an F11 that work more like an F5 um, in the six inch size, but, uh, pretty, pretty heavy scope and longer, often longer than, than what that short focal ratio would, uh, maybe otherwise, uh, require. So, uh, definitely some trade-offs there and kind of like what you were saying, um, you know, some of these telescopes with more elements, of course, they're going to be heavier and not as portable and therefore have, uh, they're going to require some longer cool down times. Eh? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, like, um, my little 50 millimeter doublet, uh, requires no cool down time. Um, and it really doesn't matter the temperature swing. It's pretty much instant. Um, my 120 ED, if it's a big temperature swing, probably 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. But if I had a 120 millimeter uh, triplet, uh, that 30 minutes is easily doubled, maybe even mm-hmm. more than that, uh, depending on the temperature swing. So um, yeah, it really does play a factor. And, and it, that, that aspect of it depends kind of where you live, um, where Mm -hmm. you and I live there, we, we can easily have, uh, you know, our houses at 20 degrees Celsius indoors 
and go outside where it's minus 20 degrees Celsius. Yeah. So a 40 degree swing is, uh, right. is wild. And, you know, having a, a fast cooling telescope is important. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's for certain. Um, and then sort of throw, uh, through some confusion into this doublets can also be quadruplets because, um, you can add in additional like field flattener sets of optics, um, like with the Borg systems, like we have a couple of the Borgs here and, uh, you can purchase uh, field flatteners for those, which, uh, are another set of lenses that, uh, that you kind of fit in down towards the eyepiece end. And then that turns it into uh, more like an astrograph, not really uh, for visual uh, purposes, um, but they, they tend to be, um, you know, wide field, uh, flat field, well-corrected instruments for, for doing like deep sky um, photography. But I really enjoy the Borg uh, five inch anyway. And, and the other ones I've looked through are pretty neat too. Um, simply because, you know, at, at reasonably fast focal ratios, like F7 or so, um, you get that really wide field of view and, and still extremely good, uh, color correction into that, uh, apochromatic range. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So one thing I put in here sort of towards the, uh, the end of the notes is, um, cause this is one thing I was always wondering about, uh, you often hear about how refractors punch, um, above their weight. And I think the one thing that we've talked a lot about here is their ability to cool down really fast. And, and you and I have, have both witnessed this um, more times than we can count is, is that these small instruments, they cool so fast that you can see so much more. And whereas a lot of people, when, when we're going observing, especially like on a, on a work night or something, might only be going out for, for a couple hours, um, when you're able to use the majority of that time for your observing, whereas some telescopes might take a couple hours to cool down, um, definitely uh, really makes these seem like magical instruments compared to larger, slower cooling instruments, eh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they do. And and uh, that's something that I really enjoy. Just set it set it up and, you know, pretty much good to observe in a, you know, by, by the time you get your eyepiece in and your star charts out, you know, everything's ready to go. Yeah, I, I remember the time. I remember when I when I was pretty sure you were going to buy a refractor. Um, you had your twelve inch, and and I set up my five inch apochromat, and I was you know on my third or fourth or fifth object or something um, while you were doing your uh, optical alignment. And I remember like you were just looking at me, <laughs> looking at what you were doing, and you know you, you were the better part of half an hour, forty five minutes setting up, and. I was already, you know, well into the, the observing session. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that definitely has, uh, has a pretty big impact as well. Eh? It does. Yeah. Yeah. It, it all adds up, uh, to my preferred way of observing. I still love reflectors. I think they're amazing. Yeah. Uh, I've looked through some outstanding Cassegrains. They're also great telescopes. Uh, I used to own some five inch Maxudovs and, uh, you know, where, where I've settled for how I like to observe, uh, it really is refractors for me. Um, you typically, you know, as you said, you're, you're observing a lot faster, um, but um, you, you can get wider fields of view. And it really is hard uh, to beat just how sharp the views are through a refractor, the, the pinpoint stars, the, the high detail on planets. Like what blew my mind too with refractors is, uh, I had an eight inch Dobsonian and then a 12 inch Dobsonian. Mm -hmm. And, uh, when I would look at Jupiter, like I would see the, the two equatorial bands, uh, and the polar regions, but usually that was about it. 
Um, when I had my 120 ED, I've seen some outstanding views of Jupiter where I can see festoons and mm-hmm. uh, color variations within the great red spot and um, like jaggedness through all of the cloud bands, like some really impressive detail on, and mm-hmm. on some nights of outstanding seeing it's almost photographic. Yeah. And I just never saw that level of detail with my, uh, Newtonians. Now, you know, there's other factors that could have been at play. Like I have better eyepieces now and I'm a better observer now than I was mm-hmm. then. So some of that all factors in, but, um, I just really enjoy the, the views that they present and the ease of use. Yeah. And we're not trying to sell anybody on sort of the uh, refractor reflector to debate or anything like that. And one of the, one of the things that has aided me in, uh, in going down the, the refractor road as many of my uh, observing friends have, uh, have good sized reflectors. And I, and I love looking through those instruments. Mm-hmm. So pe- people shouldn't, you know, I know sometimes people say, Oh, like you're a refractor guy or whatever. I'm like, well, I'm the owner of refractors, but the user of, uh, of, of refractors and reflectors. Um, and, uh, like I said, the, the only reason why my 12 inch isn't up and running my 12 inch reflector is just that, uh, every time I want to look through a 12 inch reflector, uh, I call Mike because he's much better at getting it set up and aligned and all that stuff. And, and he's, uh, really awesome at finding stuff. So, you know, it makes sense. And I want to look at a variety of different things in the sky and, uh, yeah, it's always great to uh, just to have other observers with, uh, with the big reflectors and then set up uh, one of my refractors next to it. And, and we go back and forth and, and take a look at all kinds of different stuff. So um, yeah, just really love those sessions, the ability uh, just, just to look through diff- different instruments. Um, but I will say this, cause one of the questions that, that I'd had, and I know a lot of observers have is like, what's a comparable um, refractor to reflector uh, comparison, you know, and you'll, you'll see some people say like, well, they punch above their weight and there's reasons for that. We discussed the cool down time and setup time in particular. Um, but there also are, are some other, uh, factors that come into pay, uh, play. One is that, um, oftentimes people won't have the reflectors properly, uh, aligned. Although typically the, the folks that we observe with are, are aligning their uh, optics up pretty good. Um, and then the, the other is simply the, uh, the physics of having a central obstruction. And that definitely cuts down on uh, the light coming in as well as um, some of the contrasting uh, properties of, of the instruments. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, a typical Newtonian will probably be in that 20 to 25% range for the size of the uh, central obstruction, yeah. which is the secondary mirror. I think Cassegrain's and Max are in that, uh, like closer to 30%. Yep. Um, so there's that aspect that does take away, you know, some of the light gathering. Um, and then like with a refractor, you have the spider veins that hold that secondary mirror that can sometimes also impact the image. And it's just different. So like a bright star through a reflector, um, assuming that the veins are just straight on veins, like the, the star sort of has like a, like a, a, a cross or like a plus sign, you know, in yep. terms of diffraction spikes, uh, whereas a refractor or, um, like a Cassegrain or a Mac, uh, it's like concentric circles around the bright object is what you get. So just, a you know, a slightly different view. Yeah. So in, and in the field of my comparisons, uh, in particular, using my five inch, uh, Apocromat, a really good one and comparing it to, um, friends uh, like really well-maintained, sometimes vintage, 
uh, like eight inch uh, optical craftsmen's or custom built uh, 10 inch reflectors, um, as well as my uh, six inch uh, into 67 Russian uh, Maksutov. Um, I like I came up with a fairly simple formula for how it all compared to me, and it's sort of a plus or minus. Uh, kind of thing here, but it's a it's a pretty close approximation, and that's that you simply subtract the uh, sort of central obstruction um, ratio by by the uh, by the instrument. So, for example, um, with uh, with my Russian Maksutov, which is about 150 millimeters uh, and a 30 uh, percent central obstruction, uh, give or take, um, that ends up being about like a 45 or 50 millimeter. Um, size if you took like uh, 30% of, of 150. And so therefore that instrument, to me anyway, when I look at the planets, um, the view, like sort of the aesthetic view is very similar to what I would get through uh, like a really good four inch uh, apochromatic uh, telescope. Now, what, what you gain with the larger instrument is an increase in resolution, but it's harder to see that increase in resolution. But uh, you definitely can see uh, slightly more resolution. However, because of the obstruction and atmospheric seeing um, conditions, central obstructions will um, degrade the in- instrument down to, in my opinion, a level that's equivalent to, like uh, in this instance, this example, a really good uh, four-inch uh, instrument. Um, sort of going going back to the uh, reflector versus refractor. Um, we compared uh, quite extensively an optical craftsman in, in excellent, perfect, well-maintained uh, condition um, to, to my five-inch apochromat. And so I think the secondary on that was about like an inch and a half or maybe like 1.6 inches. Um, and then the, uh, the optical craftsman wasn't quite an eight inch telescope. I think we figured out it wasn't, wasn't quite there. So when it was all said and done, we, we determined that the optical craftsman was equivalent to like more like about 130 or 135 millimeter telescope, um, versus, um, my 125 millimeter apochromat. And I'll tell you, yeah, it would just on the best nights. And we compared this over many years on the best nights, um, that optical craftsman would definitely pull ahead um, by just a little bit on the planets and some other stuff. Um, but on most nights, um, just like you would with uh, two telescopes that are only uh, that are that are unobstructed or two refractors that are maybe just ten or twelve millimeters uh, difference in size, it'd be pretty difficult to see the difference on most nights. And that's kind of what we we found. Like we felt that the five inch uh, apochromat was was extremely close. Um, to the to the eight inch uh, reflector. Yeah, that's interesting. I've I've read that before. You know, some some people have. I've never done a side by side test like that, but yeah, you know that aligns with a lot of what I've read. Is that they they run very close with uh, you know an eight inch usually pulling away on on the good nights as you indicated. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that kind of you know gets us towards the the end of this. And again, the recommendation. For people to, you know, if people are looking for instruments to get into, well, I think the refractors in the smaller sizes, um, especially in that like, uh, you know, 80 to 100 millimeter size make a lot of sense because you're, you're getting a small, lightweight, easy to mount, easy to use instrument um, that pretty much is sort of in the best of that really small class. 
But I really think like once you get to about that eight inch size in the reflector, you know, um, you've got to be getting a pretty big refractor that's difficult to mount. And, you know, you've got a lot of barriers at cost um, to get a really good one. Um, whereas the, the reflector in an eight inch size, a really, really good eight inch reflector, um, it's just not going to be as expensive as, uh, as that six inch refractor, which, uh, which is what you need to kind of, uh, probably start to surpass, uh, the really good eight inch, uh, reflectors. And then, and then just to go up again, like pretty easy to get a really good 10 inch reflector, um, pretty challenging to get like an eight inch refractor. And that's just going to be obscenely expensive and, and just a logistical nightmare to mount. So, um, you know, it just makes sense once you want instruments that are above, uh, say eight inches and above to, uh, you've really got to look at those, uh, reflectors and then like, you know, inexpensive reflectors, like from Skywatcher or other brands are, uh, are downright awesome and are going to show you stuff, um, you know, that, that the small, uh, refractors just aren't able to, to pull in. And that's why I think it's a really great uh, combination to get something like, a, a three or four inch refractor and then get like your eight or 10 inch, uh, Dobsonian. I, I think then you have like such a beautiful, uh, combination of instruments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, yeah. Variety spice of life, spice of life. Don't put spices in your instruments, folks. That's Don't right. Bad things. No salt. No salt, I said. <laughs> okay, all right, very good. Anything else to add, Jane? No, that's everything, Chris. I think we, uh, I think we covered all we can on refractors. Yeah. Um, again, if people want to read more, they can uh, look into the uh, the book on. Uh, let's see, I'll get that again. Uh, telescopes, eyepieces, and astrographs: design analysis and performance of modern uh, astronomical optics. That's just a, an awesome book. People, uh, can look into and, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll do like a dedicated reflector episode, uh, soon. I think, uh, you know, it's well, well worth it to have these. And, um, I, d- I don't want people thinking that we have some sort of, um, you know, agenda here to, I don't think everybody needs to own uh, every instrument, but it's, but it's great when you can observe with a group of people and everybody has a variety of different, uh, telescope types and, and, uh, tools. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>